Previously on Talking of Giants, we looked into the story of George Peabody, his humble origins and his meteoric rise. Hailing from a poor background in the United States, he became an important banker in the United Kingdom. He was known to be thrifty all his life, but towards the end years, his philanthropy went full throttle. And today, he is remembered, if not for anything else, for his great philanthropic contributions to the world. This was part one. Part two looked at the Morgan clan that inherited George Peabody's bank. Junius Morgan, by financing wars and making other correct bets, grew the bank to a position of power never before held by a bank in the United States. The empire, strong both in the United States and the United Kingdom, passed on to his son, John Pierpont Morgan, more commonly known as J.P. Morgan. So complicated and secretive were the workings of the bank that they were seen as a maleficent force against the United States by some. This episode, part 3 of the J.P. Morgan series, explores the rise of J.P. Morgan and the duality of progress and harmful self-interest that is at the core of this story. An elderly gentleman sat at the Capitol, the building that is the meeting place of the Congress of the United States. He was in his 70s. Known to have hated publicity all his life, this was to be a very public event for the man. A little too public for his taste. He would soon be grilled by the government's lawyer about his anti-competitive practices and allegations of being at the head of a group that manipulated finance and credit availability in the United States. In his younger days, this man would have thundered into the situation all by himself, alone. That is precisely what he had suggested that he would do to his men. But times had changed. It was no more the time when men like him held a suffocating level of grip on both commerce and government. The grip was slowly weakening. In keeping with the times, a 16-member entourage followed him. They had to make as best an impression as possible and fight their case well. The government council started his series of questions. In the barrage of questions that would follow, he asks, Isn't commercial credit, he starts, talking about the availability of loans and credit to businesses. Isn't commercial credit based primarily upon money or property? His notion was almost transparent. Painting this old gentleman and his banking dynasty as an exclusive club of rich people running the country was a foremost priority. It was a foremost priority if the government's case had to win. By asking a seemingly obvious question, the government council was pushing the old man into a corner. A corner that would be tricky for his legacy. The old man, known to be easily irritated, looked up at the government council. No, sir, he replied sternly, remembering his doting father's constant lessons. The first thing is character. 
before money or property came back the sharp question from the government council before money or anything else money cannot buy it because a man i do not trust could not get money from me on all the bonds in christendom old man jp morgan was not one to go silently to his grave he would first defend his life and legacy with all he had Hello everyone. Welcome to Talking of Giants, a podcast exploring the stories of giants from various fields. This is part 3 of our 3-part series about the JP Morgan Empire. Biographers talk of JP Morgan like he was the wind. They talk about how he would walk through Wall Street like he was the only one there. They would talk about how he would walk and crowds would part on their own jp morgan had a very strong personality he would descend upon important negotiations with an iron will it was during jp morgan's time that the lines between banking and business blurred considerably the enterprises of the time were not very efficient like the companies of today not many had a solid class of people who engaged and were trained in the profession of management while it's a given that they were always good managers it was hard to keep companies accountable for a bank keeping a company accountable was everything the same rowdy energy that made businessmen grab hundreds of miles of railway lines couldn't be brought to the company board they needed refinement JP Morgan forced this refinement upon them. He would claim board seats for himself when he gave out credit. The board seats would belong either to him or to a different JP Morgan partner. Having a board seat not only helped him monitor the business but also made the firm a captive market of the bank. As JP Morgan's career matured, he held so many board seats that the chains of power that controlled American commerce were hard to keep track of but this was the milder part of the problem the great problem was anti competitive behavior in the parlance of economics and finance anti competitive behavior refers to different firms working together to set higher prices if they competed the community would benefit greatly because prices would be closer to whatever is a fair margin for a company to have because if one company overcharges them they could always go to the next but what if all these companies work together and set high prices there would be nowhere for the buyers to go and they would be compelled to buy at the higher prices this precisely was the kind of anti competitive behavior that jp morgan promoted JP Morgan almost all his life held the notion that competition was bad for business. Having financed the expansion of many railways and having investments in them, JP Morgan wanted to maximize his returns. 
while the rhetoric of his letters to people of interest makes it sound like it was for the good of the business community it is it is not hard for one to see how deep and unshakably jpm's interests were tied to these causes jpm would convince cajole or even coerce different parties into working together his boat the corsair of which there were three different versions over his lifetime was famous for having many such meetings he would pick people representing different sides up onto his boat the boat would cruise into the waters jpm would make it clear to them that they needed to arrive on an arrangement before they got off more often than not they did it benefited everyone but these practices made for example railway fares costlier to the consumers his library in later years would play the same role as his ship the corsair did greats of government and industry would gather there for all night sessions they would leave in the morning almost always having benefited the house of morgan jp morgan's point of view was that decision making had to be concentrated in the hands of a few he reasoned that if people kept competing and undercutting each other no one could benefit by the same line of reasoning jp morgan was an important force behind the creation of us steel us steel was to become a steel juggernaut that would make andrew carnegie america's richest man the details of this deal too were finalized with jp morgan andrew carnegie and his lieutenant charles schwab sitting in jp morgan's library while seen as a villain in this regard JPM was also seen as a savior on Wall Street. Due to very little regulation over the stock markets at the time, there was always wild speculation. These often led to crises in the market. Many panics, like the panic of 1907, could have been disastrous if not for JPM's interference. During crises, more often than not, liquidity is a huge issue. When there is a public fear of a collapse many people try to pull out their money from the markets this starts a downward spiral if any institution does anything out of the ordinary it could make the spiral worse and anything out of the ordinary could mean setting a limit on how much money can be withdrawn or closing the stock market before the designated hour so that more trading can't take place While many of these things cannot take place haphazardly today due to regulation those were different times so if a panic had to be contained the first group of people thronging the streets to withdraw money would have to be paid out but institutions don't always hold so much cash other institutions might also not be willing to lend this cash due to the panic In times like these a higher power was needed to assure institutions that their money would be safe if they lent it in the absence of a federal central bank at the time 
that role had to be played by none other than J.P. Morgan. So great was his power that not only could he pump money into the markets, he could also ask other banks to do the same and they would comply. It was a known fact that it was not a good idea to go against a Morgan. While all this sounds messianic, there is a flip side. Bankers including JP Morgan had a good reason to bail out firms during a panic. Because if the panic spread far enough, all of their investments could go down the drain too, in no time. So though it was an obvious choice, the House of Morgan was needed to nudge bankers to do what was right for themselves. Critics further argue about how panics resulted from the actions of these very bankers in the first place. Excessive speculations and lending based on securities created a very fragile environment. The value of these assets was purely on paper and any significant worry from the general population could upset the balance significantly. Given these facts, J.P. Morgan was at times the cause and the solution to panics. It was far too much power for one man. One vocal critic of J.P. Morgan was William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan was a presidential nominee of the Democratic Party of the United States on three different occasions. Once when J.P. Morgan was quoted as saying, America is good enough for me, referring to how America was his first priority, William Jennings Bryan shot back promptly with the words, whenever he doesn't like it, he can give it back. This public hate against J.P. Morgan was not restricted to the US either. The man who was dubbed as Zeus or Jupiter by the newspapers, J.P. Morgan received flack in the United Kingdom as well. Peddlers in London used to sell sheets of paper with the words License to Stay on Earth written on them and underneath would be signed the name John Pierpont Morgan. The perception of these banks, especially of J.P. Morgan Company, was made worse by the climate of secrecy during those days. The 1890s and 1900s were not really the years of the jovial CEO with the charm of a talk show celebrity. Men like J.P. Morgan did not think they owed anything to the public and they said as much. So given that they were a monopoly making troublemakers and also panic-solving saviors at the same time, a new brand of politicians was born. Politicians who wanted to hold these people accountable. It was the truth of the day that even the Secretary of State of the United States would sometimes travel down to the J.P. Morgan headquarters to discuss matters of commerce. Presidents and politicians, starting with the times of Theodore Roosevelt, decided enough is enough. By the time of President Howard Taft and Woodrow Wilson, 
people had realized enough that government regulation was needed to rein in the banks the panic of 1907 showed them that they couldn't always run to jpm to solve their troubles jpm's time to reckon with it would soon come to bear it would come to bear at the pujo hearings the pujo hearings were an antitrust committee against the so called money trust the money trust was a name given to a group of influential businessmen and bankers who controlled a disproportionate amount of american finance at the center of this controversy was the jp morgan company jp morgan the man at this time was already in his 70s and he was ready to retire but to defend his life and legacy jpm stepped forward once more it was this scene that we visited at the start of the episode the hearings have a lot of interesting retorts from both sides jp morgan did his best to showcase himself as nothing but a honest banker that is a friend of the businessmen and a friend of the nation despite a lot of evidence against them the jp morgan company walked out of these allegations relatively unscathed but but the reality had now changed they could not keep going around doing what they did with the same reckless abandon as before the pujo hearings had a detrimental impact on the mighty jp morgan already a man known for his bad habits of health his body took a beating from the stress of the hearings a stress to which jp morgan eventually succumbed to it was the sunset of a banking great jp morgan left behind assets for his children a few to educational institutions and a whole years worth of salary to all jp morgan employees even though a federal reserve bank loomed large over jp morgan company now jp morgan would have his last laugh because the only borders he blurred during his lifetime were not between business and banking alone he also blurred the borders between business and politics on the british side his family intermarried and kept up great relations with royalty On the American side, JP Morgan partners would enter high ranks of government and vice versa. A practice that continues to this day. Through this soft power, JP Morgan the man continues to give power to his company from beyond his grave. It is true that you don't always stay successful by the same rules through which you became successful. Every generation changes rules if there is one thing to take away from the jp morgan story it is this when the rules change you morph you shift and you survive you understand the rules and then you master the game talking of giants is a podcast hosted by vikhyat mutyala the theme soundtrack was composed by berti ashley You can reach me Vikhyat Mutyala at talkingofgiants@gmail.com. That is talkingofgiants@gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed the show.